0: Welcome to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Davis, who is the Assistant Professor of Social Work at The Ohio State University and an Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Psychedelic Research Unit at Johns Hopkins University, which is what we'll be talking about today. So Dr. Davis's clinical experience includes working with people diagnosed with trauma-based psychological problems such as addiction, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. His clinical expertise includes providing evidence-based treatments such as motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and specifically psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. So consistent with his clinical interests, his research uh, interests and expertise, because he's both a clinician and a researcher, uh, his research focuses on contributing to the knowledge of an ability to help those suffering with substance use and mental health problems. So his psychedelic research focuses on clinical trials with psilocybin specifically, or magic mushrooms, uh, for people with depression and exploring psychological mechanisms by which psilocybin improves mental health and functioning. So that's what we're going to talk about here today. So you may have Uh, seen recently. There was a big study released from Johns Hopkins University. Um, The research has been largely publicized uh, because it was really focusing in on the use of psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, on depression. Uh, So Dr. Alan Davis was a major component of that research and that clinical trial, those clinical studies. Uh, and so he and I are going to dive deep into the findings of that research. We are going to talk about how they actually set up clinical studies for this, some of the blocks around being able to uh, take psychedelic research to the next step, the next level. Um, we're going to talk about how they set up those clinical trials, what happens in the body, uh, what some people actually experience when they go through uh, so these, these psychedelic experiences and how they are merging Um, how they're merging psychotherapy, psychology, and and traditional therapy with uh, the use of psychedelics. So very, very interesting. I've been wanting to have this conversation for quite a long time uh, with somebody from Johns Hopkins University because they are the leading institution in research um, globally, I believe. And so this is a conversation that we'll continue to have because one of uh, the impressive things of the study was that psilocybin in this study was seen to be anywhere between 4 to 10 times more effective than your average um, over-the-counter drug or medication for depression. And this is just one targeted study. So they also are doing a lot of studies around PTSD, around anxiety. Uh, And so I'll probably have somebody from Johns Hopkins back on to, to talk about some of the other trials and uh, studies that they are doing right now around PTSD and anxiety because their research is uh, quite potent. Uh, and Dr. Davis gives some insight into some of the not yet released studies and research that they, are, that they have come up with. So this is a great conversation. If you enjoy this, please do uh, share it, man it forward with somebody that you know will uh, be interested in this that is uh, really maybe into exploring this on their own or in their own lives or wanting to explore it um, because there's a lot of really great information in here and it's coming from a both a practitioner slash clinician, right? So he's a psychotherapist and a researcher uh, from one of the leading research institutes. So. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. And without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Alan Davis.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So we're going to dive deep into psychedelics and uh, the, you know, treatment and how the research is going and the, just a whole bunch of stuff that I am clearly way too excited about uh, at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, but before we do that, before we uh, kick that off, if you could just tell us a, a defining moment, a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that defines me in my current role is that I'm a clinician, I'm a therapist, a clinical psychologist, and I'm a researcher. So I'm very passionate about studying new treatments and how we can help people, which of course is what led me to psychedelics. But one of the defining moments in this trajectory for me was when I was still in training. I was uh, in my graduate program in Bowling Green State University, and I was in one of my first uh, field placements learning you know, how to be a good therapist. And it was a little bit before I knew about the psychedelic research and, and what would be there. But I remember I was working in a hospital setting and was really struggling with what to do. You know, I would I would walk into a patient's room and they'd be experiencing, you know, sometimes life-threatening illness, uh, recent trauma. And I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed about it all and not really sure how to do the things that would help these people feel better. And I remember one day I was really struggling with this, you know, how to be the best I could. And there was a chaplain at the hospital who saw me in the hallway and apparently could see that I was a little bit distressed and called me into her office. And she said, tell me a little about what's going on. What, you know, I've seen you walking around here and you seem a little bit uh, stressed out what's going on. And so I told her about, you know, I felt like I wasn't sure what to do. I was, I was really, you know, how was I going to be effective, you know, with people. And she listened for what seemed to me like a very, very long time, and didn't say much, but just really listened to all I had to say. And at the very end, after some silence, she said, I think you've forgotten that you're a human being and not a human doing. Mm. And something about that, I think shifted my own understanding of what it really means to help people and what it means to be effective. And That opened me up to the idea that it may be less about what we do and more about how we embody and and become the things that we are um, to just show up and be present for people. And um, it wasn't too long after that, that I started learning more about some of these treatments that are really about being with people Um, and sometimes being with people in their most difficult and vulnerable moments, which certainly in psychedelic therapy, um, that's a lot of what it's about, you know, is helping kind of wade through some sometimes very difficult things in order to help people get to the other side. And so I think that that's one memory that I come back to is kind of defining my own understanding of who I am as a, Certainly, as a therapist, but also in all of my work and research.
0: Yeah, and I think you have, I, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is that you do have such a unique perspective, right? Because sometimes there is a division between the research and the and the actual usage um, of these types of, of treatments, and so um, I think you have a very unique perspective where you're doing you're doing a little bit of both, which is wonderful. And I have to say, there's a little bit, you know, I'm a little I'm a little jealous in some ways because your job sounds pretty damn cool uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. And I think, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, what kind of pulled you into psychedelic research specifically? And yeah, let's just start there. What, what pulled you into it uh, in, in the first place?
1: So what initially uh, prompted my uh, interest in this area was also as part of that clinical training, I started working in uh, veterans hospitals uh, in Ann Arbor and also in Baltimore. And I was working with veterans with really complex challenges. You know, a lot of them had, you know, pretty severe PTSD. Uh, Many of them also struggled with substance misuse and, and depression and anxiety. And I found that you know, some of the treatments that we had, and, and at the time, you know, that we had some pretty good treatments available, um, you know, wasn't the dark ages of mental health care anymore. Uh, but even so, the treatments didn't work for everyone. And the ones that it that didn't work for really struggled to um, have hope and to come back and, and to keep working on it. And I just felt very much like, um, almost like, you know, all of the all of the good gold standard things that I had been trained in just weren't sufficient to meet the need. And so it really prompted me to open up to exploring what else was out there. And I started reading uh, some of the early uh, studies or early of the new wave studies uh, that were coming out from Hopkins in 2016 when they published their cancer trials uh, using psilocybin for people with life-threatening illness. And also the MAPS MDMA for PTSD studies, uh, which were coming out around 2012, 2013. And so those studies, I just kind of prompted this, Hope in me that there was potentially something that could be coming down the pipeline that would really be able to to meet some of this um, need, and so really it started off as just an academic interest, you know, as part of my clinical training, and then I was fortunate to start uh, connecting and, and eventually get a position working um, with the Hopkins team uh, in one of those studies, and I think that was, you know, somehow just a, a uh, di- you know, divine intervention of of timing and 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 luck and kind of hard work, kind of getting to that point, um, but then was able to really kind of you know de- invest fully into that work.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I think it's interesting because in many ways, I mean, psychedelics have and plant medicine specifically has been around in many different cultures. Um, you know, from what the research well, I mean, starting to come out, it has been around for a very, very, very long time. And it's interesting to see science starting to step in and take a larger interest in this. And I think, you know, we we kind of we kind of fucked it up a little bit in the sixties and the seventies, you know, with uh, maybe a, <laughs> like the Timothy Leary charge and and uh, and and just some of the over zealous um, nature that that people were starting to use, you know, without a lot of research and and there was a lot of self experimentation within the public communities. And I think. I've always had a little bit of concern nowadays that as psychedelics becomes more popular and we have, you know, uh, books coming out about them, you know, how to how to change your mind and, and uh, you know, just just it becoming more popularized that, that people, you know, seem to be wanting they're hungry for this. You know, like a lot of people are really, really excited for this. So I'm curious for you just to kind of get into the research of it. How does one. Go about researching the impacts of psychedelics. Like, what do you actually look at? Because I, I can imagine, I and again, I'm not you know gifted in in the research capacity. I'm not an academic and and never was. Um, so I'm I'm curious to hear your insight on this. But how do you actually go about starting clinical trials on this? What does that look like? What do you test for? Uh, yeah maybe i'll just open that up to you and open in a question because i i think that a lot of people hear some of these research and, and case studies coming out but most people don't understand like what does that case study actually look like what goes into that how do you test this so i'll, I'll just hand that over to you
1: Yes, yeah, so it's a you know it's a it's a complex question. So I'll do the best I can. It's a it certainly is a an undertaking, and and it's one of the reasons why it's taken so long since the you know late 1960s, early 70s, when most of these substances were banned by most governments around the world. Um, it's taken this long to get this research going again because it's so difficult to get through all of the hurdles that are necessary uh, in the current uh, system. Uh, so that involves not only hopefully having Having the funding to do it, which, of course, is one of the battles um, and maybe even one of the more substantial ones, which, of course, I think in the last year or two has become uh, less of a challenge. There's a lot more people getting interested in this and, and wanting to fund studies, but back in when we started this depression study that just came out, you know, this was crowdsourced funding campaign that was organized by Tim Ferriss. And it was uh, amazing that, you know, we actually were able to garner public you know donations to support this study. Then it really kind of funded the, the, the minimal effort that we that it could uh, to really to just kind of create this. What was ultimately a passion project among the investigators on the team? You know, we had studies going on that were funded by. Uh, grants that were kind of consuming most of our time, but we really felt like this was an important topic and we wanted to invest our time in it. And most of that time was invested, you know, that wasn't really covered officially from uh, the funds that came in for this study, but it, it, but it did cover the costs needed to get the participants in and and to, and to see the study through. And so once that, that those funds came in, it then was about a year and a half to two year process of developing the protocol And then trying to get it through all the regulatory hurdles. So a study like this has to go through an institutional review board at the local university that, that has to decide whether or not it, it is an ethical study and that participants are being protected from harm or potential harm. And then once they approve it, it has to go through the FDA and they have to also make their determination about uh, the study. Uh, once it's approved from FDA, then you have to go to the DEA because it's wow. a schedule one drug. <laughs> yeah. And then at any point along that that path, any one of those groups can come back and say, no, we want these changes, which prompts then having to go back to all the other groups and and have those changes addressed. So it is quite a, a, a substantial hurdle to get something like this done and uh, and in and mostly, mostly it's, an, it's an investment of time and, and, and energy um, and to be able to persist in the, in the face of some of those obstacles. Uh, once you get that all done, though, um, the study itself, you know, being able to run the study is in my experience, you know, it it can be stressful, uh, but it's also quite of a joy because you finally get to start working with people. You finally get to start uh, providing the treatment in the research setting, uh, which as you might imagine is quite structured. And there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, protocol involved in making sure that, you know, again, it's a, it's a study. We want to make sure we're controlling for as much uh, as we can in the design, meaning that we want to, you know, screen people appropriately, make sure that they actually have the type of condition that we're treating uh, potentially with this intervention. Uh, we want to make sure that they have all the clinical support that they need uh, throughout the duration uh, of their involvement, including the therapy part of the treatment and the psilocybin part of the treatment and of course then following them up uh for for this study up to a year we're following them um although we just in the first publication published the one month um outcomes so there's quite a bit uh that goes into this and and one of the things that we really try to do is at each step of the way we try to keep in mind what's the purpose of this process and and the purpose kind of i think keeps the passion going and keeps you kind of working through all of those hurdles
0: mm. so in this in this uh latest Uh, round the latest study that you did it was focused in on PTSD and depression or was it just PTSD
1: so for this study that was just published in JAMA psychiatry we uh, primarily focused on depression uh, Mm -hmm. specifically people who uh, were in a current major depressive episode uh, although most of them had been depressed for um, uh, many many years
0: so just kind of set the scene for the listener right so somebody that's struggling with a, a good amount of depression they sign up for this for this study and then what does this what does the psychedelic assisted therapy actually look like um because i think for some people they you know they don't have a lot of context for this
1: so for this intervention what we're doing is we're combining uh, psychotherapy with psilocybin and what that means is that we spend about 11 hours total Of time, really just in a therapeutic uh, engagement with the, there's typically two, uh, excuse me, trained therapists, uh, or one trained therapist, there's sometimes are two trained therapists, there's always an assistant guide, which sometimes is a trained therapist, sometimes is a research assistant. Uh, But they, we engage in about eight hours of that therapy prior to their first dose of psilocybin. And that eight hours is spent Uh, developing trust and rapport, getting to know the person, helping them to get to know us because we want them also to feel comfortable with uh, who we are and in the setting. And we also spend quite a bit of time helping to prepare them for what might come up during their psilocybin session. Now, At this point, we don't have a lot of data to be able to predict exactly what will happen on that psilocybin day. Uh, And from what I can tell you with our um, depression volunteers, we had people having all different kinds of experiences and, and really none of them looked exactly alike you know, from each other. And because of that, you know, we we need to spend a bunch of time helping people understand the range of possibility that that could potentially happen, um, even though we don't know exactly what will happen for them, and trying to give them some skills to navigate some of those experiences should they arise. So that eight hours is spent, you know, with quite a bit of that. Um, then they come in and in this study, we had two psilocybin sessions. So their first session, they come in and they spend the entire day with us at the site. Um, and the room uh, looks very similar to what someone might imagine of a someone's living room. So we have a, a you know, living room kind of area furnished with a, a couch that's uh, kind of, we make into a, a place that they can lie down for the day. We have, you know, end tables, art on the wall, soft lighting. Uh, it's certainly not what you would imagine from the outside of the building when you look and it's on a hospital campus, but it, it looks very much uh, like a home environment. And they come in for the day, they take psilocybin, and the two therapist guides are there with them for the entire duration. So we spend the day with them and, and can we're there for them if they need us. Uh, we do encourage them to wear uh, eye shades and headphones, and to spend the day uh, really kind of with an inward reflection approach uh, to the psilocybin experience. However, sometimes people need you know support, or they might want to you know take a break, so to speak, and and you know kind of come out of that. And and we certainly are there to talk and to help them if they need it. Um, but mostly we're there just to be with them for the day. And, uh, I'll say we've had the whole range of experience. We've had some people who, you know, they, they lie there the entire day and and don't need us at all. And we've had some people who need us the entire time and, Mm. and need a lot of support. So it really does, uh, run the range. Um, then they come in the next day after that session. And we have a therapy session where we're talking about, you know, what happened yesterday, what the experience were, um, how they're feeling, you know, what, how, how is their depression? Um, and importantly, we talk about integration, you know, how to take whatever insight or experiences they had in their soul assignment session and start to uh, integrate those into their daily life. Then we do it all again with a second psilocybin session about a week or two later and uh, follow that up again with integration therapy. So it is quite an extensive uh, treatment, but we believe strongly that the therapeutic approach and the setting and the the way that we go about it is what enhances the safety of the experience. We're not giving low doses in this study. We're giving high doses of psilocybin and we want to ensure that people are going to have the most likelihood of experiencing a benefit if they can.
0: So in this, in this study, you know, I love it that you know, your, your research and I is focusing very much on depression, especially right now when you know, most of the world is on lockdown and quarantine. And I think we're seeing mental health spikes really rise. Um, I do a lot of work with men specifically. And just the amount of the influx that we've seen is, is quite substantial. And I think the challenges that a lot of people are having with the isolation specifically is, you know, I think people are more prone to depression um, just because of that. But I'm, I'm curious when you say uh, when you talk about that, I had two two follow up questions from that one is the the dosage part of that. Are you working with people that have ever done psychedelics before or are you actively searching out people that have never experienced this? And then how are you determining dosages? Because I think for a lot of people when they're going into this, that is one of their major concerns. It's like, do I start small and work my way up? Or if I'm, you know, in the right environment with the safety and and security of people that are trained in this, can I go a little bit heftier?
1: So uh, in terms of whether or not people have had psychedelic experiences, we don't have a a strict cutoff. Although we do search for people who have had minimal or no psychedelic experience, just from a research perspective, it's a little bit easier to control for the idea that they, you know, have never had this experience before. Um, kind of a clean safe, so to speak, of the of the treatment. However, many people come in and they have had experiences, you know, in the past maybe when they were younger, and it's been, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years since they had that experience. And we certainly wouldn't exclude people for something like that. Uh, But if they've had any recent experiences, uh, you know, we had some people screen who had, you know, a big LSD experience six months ago. and, And for us, that would be something that we would probably exclude just because it would be difficult then to really empirically be able to say, you know, whether it was the treatment or maybe this combination of this other experience that they had. Uh, in terms of uh, you know how do we select the dose, uh, the decision for dosing was done in large part by some of the seminal work done by Roland Griffiths and the team at Hopkins uh, in the early 2000s that came out and was published, I believe, in 2006, where they did what's called a dose finding study, where they gave people... I believe it was a series of five different doses from low to extremely high, and it was done in a randomized uh, way to kind of be able to figure out, you know, what are the effects of these different doses and what are both the desirable effects and what are maybe some of the undesirable effects. And essentially what that study found was that the the doses that we ended up using for our clinical studies were the doses that were found to produce the best chance of positive effects, uh, but minimize some of the potential challenging effects. Uh, In particular, anxiety. It was found that at the Mm -hmm. very high doses, anxiety was extremely common and could interfere with the potential therapeutic benefits of of the experience. So uh, that's essentially how that was done was kind of narrowing in into this range of dosing, which uh, in our studies are the doses that we use. And then, of course, on the the current phase three multi-site trials, they're also using doses in that same range.
0: So when you say very high, are you talking about like over 5 grams, over 7 grams, like where, where does that, because I think I've seen that spectrum where like the low, the very low is sort of like 0.8 of a gram, I think is where that, that chart sort of starts and then it, you know, goes up from there. I think it sort of doubles along the way. Um, But what does the clinic, what's the sort of like the clinical classification for a, a high dose?
1: So it's a little bit difficult to compare because we use a synthetic version of the drug. So we're just right. using pure psilocybin. And this, the ranges that we provided in this study that's just recently published were 20 milligrams and 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms of body weight. And what that equates to roughly for our higher dose of 30 milligrams per 70 kilogram would be approximately five grams of dried mushrooms. Um, however, again, it's not exactly equivalent. Um, most of the current study is going on right now are using 25 milligrams as a standard dose, not based on body weight. And so uh, again, that's somewhere probably between, you know, four and four and a half grams. Mm. Uh, I would like to say, I did ask a question about uh, what people could do in terms of dosing. You you know, it's something that as a researcher and as a therapist, of course, I'm biased by uh, uh, being uh, cautious and, uh, and considering, you know, Uh, the importance of having therapeutic support and the rigor of, you know, all of the preparation that goes into these experiences. So I, I, you know, obviously can't advocate for people doing this on their own. Um, And hopefully people will have access to more research opportunities. You know, there's many sites now around the world, uh, both in the U.S. as well as in Europe, um, that are testing this now in depression. And so hopefully people could find a a legal option, or in some of the places where there are becoming legal options, they could certainly uh, find the right kind of support. And there's a lot of providers now that are providing online information and, and integration services to help people with making sense of those experiences if they need that kind of support.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm Canadian, and so it's uh it's getting a little bit wild up there. It's like the wild wild west for Silas Ivan, right? let we're getting all excited, and you know, I've it's uh, I think people. There's talk about uh, the government actually legalizing it, but I think one of the things that's really important about what you're saying, and it, this sort of brings in the how do people engage with psych- psychedelics and psilocybin specifically, if they are wanting to move this forward. I think one of the the beautiful parts of what you're saying is that this is very much being driven by people, right? By people that believe in this modality of healing, by people that have maybe experienced this, but just everyday people, right? Even just like you're talking about your study is you know, cr- crowdfunded in a big way. And so we're gonna get to the, you know, at the end, we'll talk about how can people get involved. But I think I just am in awe and really sort of inspired by a lot of the people that are pushing some of these healing modalities forward because they, you know, they've seen the benefits. So tell me a little bit about what people experience and why the introspection is so important during that, uh, during the actual experience of being on psychedelics, because you talked about, you know, having the headphones on or maybe listening to music. I know Johns, Johns Hopkins has a, a few different, um, psychedelic treatment playlists that are out there in the ether and, um, they're wonderful, but <laughs> they're, they're, they're wonderful, but why is that so important? And, you know, what do people experience? And, and, and I think the last part is like, why is it so beneficial for depression? Because I think one of the things that your research showed is that it's it's quite a bit more effective so far from what we're learning. It's quite a bit more effective than your sort of average um, SSRI blocker.
1: So one thing that I'd like to mention is you know you you, you mentioned the, you know the the decriminalization process and even some in some places the the potential legalization of this which I think are, are really uh, important steps to consider in the whole process, uh, regardless of so if someone has a mental health problem or they're wanting to explore something in a, in a legal framework um, for their you know psychosocial health. Uh, at the same time, I think one of the, the things that I think is fascinating is that you know, earlier you mentioned the importance of how how long these have been around and, and the indigenous use of these substances. And I think one of the things that we lack in Western culture is, is the community and the culture cultural understanding of how these experiences unfold and what they mean. We lack an understanding and a a language around um, how to talk about them. And in in a lot of places, we lack community and family support for helping people integrate the experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so cautious about, you know, saying that everyone should just go out and have this experience. But in terms of what the experiences are, um, you know, they, they they again they run the range. But a lot of people report having what's what called as a mystical experience, which I think has gotten most of the attention in the research and maybe even in the popular media. Uh, people having these uh, sometimes religious or sometimes spiritual, uh, sometimes not really defined in those words, but otherwise transcendent connection to the universe or to, or to humanity. And these experiences are common. However, they don't happen for everyone. And they don't certainly happen, you know, with that same kind of language for everyone. Um, but there are quite a few people who talk about this um, separate uh, or a kind of a Uh, a connection to something bigger than themselves. And some people also at the same time will talk about having these downloads or these insights that they get during the experience where they'll have a realization about themselves or about their relationships or maybe about their past, maybe a new understanding about a past difficult experience that they've had um, or a discovery about something that they want to do in the future or a new path for them. And it might be the case that when these uh, mystical and insightful experiences happen together, that that might produce real robust changes. And and several uh, papers that we published on the topic of what we're calling quantum change or when these mystical and insight experiences happen at the same time, that those seem to be related to uh, a variety of, of mental health uh, improvements as well as uh, in this recent depression study related to uh, the antidepressant effect of the treatment. And so I think it really speaks to at least two of what is likely many different, you know, experiences that people can have. As one example, we had a, a volunteer in the depression study who had been, very socially anxious and depressed for most of her life. And, and, uh, one of the places that that showed up was in her work that, you know, she would, she would try to engage in her occupation, but she was so anxious in the environment that she really had a difficult time performing well. And it was one of the things that really, she's just really struggled with and kind of contributed to her ongoing depression. And in her psilocybin session, one of the experiences that she had was she became this dragon. And in this dragon experience, she was kind of, you know, feeling very powerful and, and, and she somehow in the experience showed up at her work as this dragon and she burst through the doors and began to burn it to the ground and eat all of the people that she worked with. (laughs) Um, And what was interesting is that a couple of days after her psilocybin session, when she went back to work, she came back and said, I went back to work and all of my anxiety was gone Mm. and, we said, oh, my God, that's amazing. How did that happen? And she said, well, I it just occurred to me, how can I be afraid of people I can eat? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's just one example. But these insights, these kind of these experiences can be quite profound for people in the way that they that they can take them forward into their life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think. I mean, immediately, the first thing that popped to my mind was that importance of community and being able to reintegrate. Because I think I've connected with a number of people who have and worked with a number of people who have gone and done, you know, ayahuasca experiences or psychedelics or MDMA, or, you know, done them on their own, and then have sort of tried to reintegrate and don't have the language for it. And it can cause a bit of isolation, right? Because it's like, well, how do I explain this experience to someone that might not have context for it, right? So they're trying to explain to partners or friends that have maybe never done psychedelics. And so there's not that reintegration process, which, you know, what I hear you saying is is, is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So having a community of people like you're talking about having, um, you know, professionals that can guide you in that to be able to say, you know, tell me about that experience and let's talk about this. And because you're sort of entering the dream realm, you know, you're entering this space where, and I'd like to talk about how psychedelics actually function, because from my understanding, when you take psychedelics or something like psilocybin, it starts to not shut down, but diminish the activity within your default mode network, which is largely responsible for your, like, your ego chatter and and that sort of like hardened part of your identity. So I was wondering if you can just speak to that a little bit of like what's actually happening from maybe not like a neurochemical level, but what's actually happening in our in our body? What's the research showing? What's the study showing of what's actually going on when we are are using psychedelics?
1: Well, you're certainly right. You know, there are studies that have pointed to the default mode network. And, uh, you know, the people can kind of think about the default mode network as their ego or their person, the, the part of their brain that kind of gives them their identity and the part of brain that's kind of daily kind of thinking through plans and, you know, thinking about the world as they see it. Um, And that during the psilocybin experience, this part, this network of, of, of activation in the brain uh, seems to reduce. And that allows for other parts of the brain that maybe don't get so much uh, activity or connection on a day-to-day basis to come forward. And some of the studies that came out of Imperial College London a few years ago really showed this quite uh, nicely in uh, figures. And most people have seen these kind of rainbow figures with all these different new connections in the brain that they were able to show that not only were strengthen during the experience, but seem to kind of persist in strengthening different parts of the, of the brain, which is really an incredible um, understanding of, of, of a piece of how this all works. You know I like to think of it as, as, you know, we have some information now about certain pieces of this, but I think there's a lot more that we need to understand. Uh, one of the things that we uh, measured in our depression study, although we haven't published it yet, is we looked at a a very specific part of the brain called the amygdala. And why that is an important part of the brain for depression is because we know that for people who are depressed, their amygdala, which is the part of the brain that is very connected to your emotional experience, the the amygdala is very hyper reactive to negative emotional information in the environment. So someone who is depressed is more likely because of this hyperactivation of the amygdala to perceive and pay attention to negative emotional things that they see. You know, if there's two people walking down the street in front of them, and one of them has a happy face, and one of them has a sad face, their brain is going to selectively attend to that to the unhappy face. And they're going to have a reaction to that, um, as opposed to someone who's not depressed. And so, uh, if psilocybin is helpful for depression, one of the hypotheses could be that it's somehow changing the way that the amygdala responds to this emotional information that people come into contact with during the day. So we measured this in our depression study and are going to hopefully be publishing this soon. But one of the preliminary analyses that we've done has shown that there is a reduction in the amygdala's reaction to negative emotional information after psilocybin treatment. And the degree to which that reduced activation occurs was associated with their antidepressant effect of the drug so that's also starting to show at least you know specifically for people who are depressed one of the possible um uh, neurological mechanisms that could help us understand why it was effective
0: wow wow i mean that's that's pretty that's pretty potent that sounds pretty pretty <laughs> damn important <laughs> uh, and and promising in in many ways wonderful beautiful i mean i'm i'm curious uh, I, I'm curious, there was, there was something that just came up for me around like initiation and again, just sort of tying back into this idea of community and going through this together, because, uh, you know, I think that at some point there's probably a usage for this in, in couples therapy, my wife is, is like one of the top, uh, couples therapists. And so we're always talking about, you know, new modalities of supporting people and, and just reconnecting and repairing intimacy. Uh, but i'm I'm curious if there has been any sort of research on or if you've noticed anything while going through these studies on how it repairs individuals' connections to intimacy. because I think one of the byproducts that I hear you talking about sort of inadvertently is that you know, with depression, there's a very specific kind of isolation, you know, and with heightened levels of anxiety, um, there's a very specific kind of feeling out of control. And both of those things, pull us away from intimacy, these sort of like intimate connections that we all crave that we physiologically require. And so I'm, I'm curious if you can just speak to that, like how do you see psychedelics impacting intimacy?
1: You know, I think that they have a strong impact on our ability to connect to ourselves. And in so doing, allow us to be more open and aware of the connections that we have with others. And I think, you know, on, a, on an intimacy level, that's critical, right? Our ability to understand and feel centered and grounded in who we are and to be able to show up for our partners in a way that is grounded and, and aware, I think directly impacts the degree to which we can connect with that person and, and explore that connection And and kind of operate as a as a as a as a team as a partnership, and I think that the same is true for broader communities and families. Um, And in a large to a large extent, I think that's one of the interesting features of you know how. Indigenous cultures use these medicines. You know, there was an entire structure of connection in those communities that, that really kind of depended on each member's contribution to the unit. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we've lost a lot of that in Western culture. And um, in part, psychedelics, I think, are, are reminding us of, of the importance of those connections uh, to ourselves and to others. And I think allows us to kind of reconnect to this understanding of the importance of community and connection. And certainly through some psilocybin that's something that's frequently um, reported is you know the the uh kind of connection not only to to humans but also to nature um reconnection to uh things that are important to them to one's values um reconnection to uh operating and behaving in ways that are congruent with those values and and to in you know, for a lot of people that's about their their human connections and mm. so i i do think that that's a big piece of this i also just as a as a kind of uh, foundational point from my role as a clinical psychologist, I think that you know our disorders that we kind of classify as depression or anxiety or PTSD or addiction, I think to a large extent these are uh, a really good attempt at trying to put things in boxes um, it, with these labels. but when you when you really look and you work with people who have these different problems, the, the kind of the core of many of them is a disconnection. It's a disconnection from uh, emotion. It's a disconnection from others. It's a dis- disconnection from uh, certain types of uh, important things that they want in their life. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it's a disconnection. And I think that, um, you know, whether it's a psychological or neurological mechanism or, or maybe some other type of mechanism of psilocybin that we don't really fully understand yet, I think that what it's doing is it's, it's helping get at that core core level of disconnection, that might be why we're seeing it effective across a lot of different types of uh, patient populations.
0: Mm, So good. I have so many different directions that I want to take that in. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving this conversation. This is great. Well, I think, um, you know, I brought up one of my favorite psychologists and therapists. His name is um, Francis Weller. And he's just a very very gifted individual in my opinion. and he talks about initiation being lacking in our culture. and initiation, as he defines it is a is a, an encounter with death in some way. you know And traditionally when we look at mythology and the different forms of initiations that culturally around the globe we as human beings have gone through, they always in some way, shape or form, bring us into contact with death. <clears throat> and he calls them in a, uh, uh, a contained encounter with death, right? And contained being, we have that support network, right? We're not just willy nilly out there on our own being, you know, going off into the forest and then having this, you know, close encounter with death and then, you know, not having anybody there to support us when we come back. And his idea was that initiation is not necessarily about personal growth and development, but rather that it's about connecting us and reconnecting us back to the community at large, and that we all have these sort of blocks and barriers that we need to go into so that we can reconnect with the community. And that when we have these uncontained encounters with death, right, so people that maybe have done, uh, you know, psychedelics at a, at a rave party or something like that back in their early, you know, teens or 20s or something like that and they, you know, have this experience that is maybe not so, not so great, that's an uncontained encounter, right? Or um, trauma, right? Different forms of trauma that people experience, right? PTSD, going to war, seeing, seeing your friends, seeing people, you know, men that you know, women that you know, being killed and watching that, that's an uncontained encounter with death, because most of those people don't have the support to be able to understand uh, and work through what's happened. They don't have the community to go back to. And so I think what you're saying is incredibly important because it sounds like the study is really designed uh, specifically to give people that container so that they can work through some of the challenges that are going, you know, going on. And I think it also just puts, a, you know, a really extra emphasis on us as people starting to reconnect to the community around us, to people around us, and to open up these conversations. I think we've you know, we, we get so stuck on talking about useless shit half the time, you know, and, you know, the political rhetoric is just one of those things that seems to be the last however many years is top of people's minds. So, but that's just a little tangent. So can you, can you speak a little bit about NDEs, like near-death experiences in psychedelics? Because I think it's something that some people report. Right having this some sort of mystical encounter with death or a part of them dying um, and oftentimes in our culture we don't ha- we don't actually let death into our conversations a lot, and I think you know again, having worked with a lot of a lot of men it's one of the things that they are really craving underneath the surface to talk about right the loss of someone, loss of a relationship, death of a relationship and it's something that we've been taught not to grieve, and so we hold on to all of this shit um when we have experienced loss and we don't know how to grieve. And so I know that with psychedelics, a lot of people experience those types of situations. And so I'm hoping that you can, from a clinical perspective and maybe in the research, like where does death fit into this whole uh, picture? And, and if you can give any insight on that, I think that'd be great.
1: Certainly, yeah, I think that the, the way that death shows up in these experiences and in people's lives, I think is, again, can be very different. And buried, but but one of the I think hallmarks of the psychedelic experience for some people is this sense of encountering death, either of themselves or of others, uh, or the death of who they think they are. uh, In you know, in these ways that can facilitate a new understanding and a new connection to um, to their engagement in the world. So, as an example, we had uh, someone one time who reported that in their experience they kind of cycled through each person, each important person in their life kind of came into their psilocybin experience. And they actually kind of went through this process of, of kind of in their experience being with them as they died mm-hmm. and, and feeling that loss and that grief that hadn't even occurred yet. Right. These people were alive and well, but they kind of experienced this loss in a way that was on one hand, incredibly difficult for them. You know, it was their children, it was their parents, um, it was their spouse. It was incredibly difficult. But as they emerged from the experience, what they realized was is that in part their anxiety, their day-to-day anxiety and depression was all about containing this fear of loss because they didn't have the skills or the foundation in their upbringing to understand how to integrate and work with grief and loss. And they reported that ever since that experience, their ability to show up and engage in a non-anxious way with these people um, was just incredibly increased, that they were able to, you know, not fear the potential loss in the future of these people who were incredibly important to them, but instead could just engage in the moment, you know, show up now um, and enjoy the relationship that they have. And, And they also said that they knew that regardless of what happened, regardless if someone died tomorrow or if they died 20 years from now, that they knew that, that that loss was was somehow not going to be the end for them. And that's, I think, where kind of like the mystical component comes into that. That you know, they had this awareness during their experience that, you know, it's all for them. Their understanding was it's all a big cycle and they're going to, you know, things are going to to. to Pass on and and evolve and move forward and and that that connection isn't diminished and and that was incredibly powerful for them and and certainly uh, certainly led to their feeling better about um, things in their life so you know it shows up in that way we've also had people describe. Um, experiencing their own death uh, and going through that kind of dying and, and rebirthing process with with also similarly reported effects of just you know no longer fearing uh, this thing that you know in a lot, a lot of ways I think we fear it because we we aren't we're not addressing it we're not talking about it we're not we don't have a cultural container for it in a way that I think helps people to make sense of what it is and you know, maybe that's in part because there's a lot of different, you know, religious traditions that have their own take on what it is. And we haven't, you know, certainly in Western culture, we haven't, you know, we don't have like a universal understanding of, of, you know, what happens after death or or what the process is all about. And so maybe we've kind of left it to these religions to to define that for us. But what that's done is it's created a vacuum for the millions of people who don't follow a religion, uh, but also even for those that do, um, it's left questions in the air about, you know, what is this? And I, it just seems like taking the hands-off approach culturally has not really helped us uh, in our mental health. Um, but these experiences often do kind of create this um, ability for people to feel more comfortable with, it, with the topic and, uh, and certainly better able to engage in their life.
0: Love it. Yeah. I've actually, it's interesting the the experience that you described, I've had something very similar where I relived each of my relationships and relived the letting go of that relationship and the death of that relationship. Cause I was very young and I hadn't, I didn't know how to grieve. And so I had like repressed everything. And so I got to relive each of those experiences and actually grieve them. And it was a beautiful. one. I've also had the, you know, complete, uh, ego death, which is a very, <laughs> very interesting one. We'll leave that be. Um, but I, I was curious. Do you have you ever heard of a show called Midnight Gospel by mm-hmm. Duncan Trussell? So it's on it's on Netflix. A really interesting one. Um, it's almost like this this series, and one of the episodes is all about death. Where it's it's very interesting because it sounds like a podcast. He's interviewing real life people, but what's happening is this animated cartoon that looks like a psychedelic trip. And it's really profound. And there is one episode that's on death where they talk about some of the stuff that that you just described. Um, okay, well, I could talk to you for hours, um, <laughs> but we, yeah, I am just being conscious of time, um, as as we must do in this physical form. So, uh, so let me, just tell us a little bit about what are the barriers in your field? Like it sounds like there is a lot of bureaucracy. It sounds like there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to go into just, you know, progressing some of this research and study. Uh, So what are the barriers and how can the average person support your work, this work, just in general? How can they get involved?
1: you know, so other than the the kind of the bureaucratic barriers right now, which hopefully over the next couple of years will decrease, you know, we're hoping that uh, the FTA will, you know, in the next two to three years have enough data to support, you know, changes in the uh, availability of, of uh, psilocybin and hopefully MDMA as well. Um, of course, there's a lot of State level in the United States and maybe even government level in Canada changes to people's access to some of these things. But in addition to that, one of the biggest challenges I think at this point has been you know, the research to a large extent has been siloed within a very few select um, academic institutions. And uh, although that was helpful to kind of get this stuff going and to get to where we are today. Uh, we need to broaden out into other disciplines. We need to be looking at the importance of of, uh, psychedelic inquiry in anthropology and in music and in uh, cultural studies and uh, Latinx studies and history. And, you know, there's so many different disciplines that are neglected right now in this field, in part because so much of the work has been put into the clinical trials. But, you know, as we've talked about throughout this episode, Um, Without these cultural um, understandings and the language around these experiences and all the work that needs to happen in a humanistic way around this topic and culture the clinical trials and the clinical work is ultimately, I think, going to be limited because mm. people aren't going to have something to go back to. And that's really where these other disciplines thrive. You know, people need to be able to engage in critical analysis and critical writing and, and, and be working on, uh, you know, in any discipline they're interested in, bringing this topic to um, the forefront. And so one of the things that we're trying to do, um, we've created a nonprofit uh, foundation called Source Research Foundation, where we're starting to provide small grants to students in all different types of disciplines from history to neuroscience in order to fund these students inquiry, hoping that this can contribute to a broadening out of um, the study of psychedelics. And, you know, for people that are interested, they can follow us at or sourceresearchfoundation.org um, and read about the students uh, that we've supported. And uh, certainly if people feel like contributing to that, we uh, would love to um, have their donations as well.
0: Beauty, beauty. Well, maybe we'll uh, find a way to work that into to something that we support uh, moving forward. But for definitely for everybody that's interested, go check that out. We'll have the links for that in the show notes. Listen, Alan, this has been wonderful. I think um, you are so welcome on the show anytime, uh, anytime. So if you have some new research coming out, please let us know. Love to have you back on to, to talk about all this. Um, and, you know, I think just to sort of close things off, one of the things that really Stood out to me about what you just said there is just how we have sort of sterilized a lot of these conversations around grief, right? And around people seeing sadness, around people seeing these different parts that we have tried to sort of strip mine out of society, right? Death, grief, sadness, loss, these types of things we, we sort of pack behind closed doors. Real spiritual experiences as well. We tend to like put those behind closed doors and not talk about them because we culturally don't really accept them. And so, you know, I love that psychedelics is sort of a, a representation of all those things, right? It's it's you can experience all those things, and uh, and allowing those things to unfold during your experiences um, is is part of the ride. So. Thank you so much for bringing your wisdom, for doing the research, for being an advocate for this. Um, I don't, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I really appreciate the work that you're doing. So thank you so
1: much. Thank you so much. You know, I think it's important to say that we have the whole range of those experiences within us and psychedelics just give us the opportunity to experience it. And uh, it's such a wonderful gift and honor that I've had to be able to be with people who've had these experiences. Um, And I'm super um, excited to be able to share this with you and your audience. today. So thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Alan. For everybody that's out there listening, definitely uh, share this episode, man it forward and share it with somebody that you know is curious about this topic, wanting to learn more. Uh, You can head on over and uh, check out Alan's work and the website to support uh, the research. And uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way to getting us onto the phones and into the ears of other people. So until next week, Connor Beaton out.